Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Uh, So we are in week three of our series that we've been in now called Home Sweet Home. And we're going through the Bible kind of chronologically this year of 2022 from Genesis to Revelation, and we are nearing the end of the Old Testament. So we are in a period of time where the ancient Jewish people had been in exile in Babylon. They've been displaced and scattered from their home country, and now they're coming back to home sweet home. So we've been talking about kind of two projects that they, some two home projects that they did. Uh, One, they rebuilt the temple led by a man named Zerubbabel, and then about 70 years later, they rebuilt the the wall around the city of Jerusalem uh, under Nehemiah's leadership, and then Ezra's in there a little bit as well. So those two projects we've been discussing the last few weeks, and last week, when we talked about the rebuilding of the walls and gates around the city, we asked, how are they able to pull that off? How are the people able to mobilize themselves and push through and make this huge, massive project a reality? And so we kind of started part one of where we're going to pick up today. We looked at, we're looking at four aspects that the people utilized to push through and make this project happen. We covered three last week. We're going to cover the last one today. So quickly, let's kind of recap what we talked about last week, and then we'll just flow right into the fourth aspect of getting these projects done. So the way that the people were able to get these things done is first they named a task. They knew here's the thing that needs to be done. Here's the unfinished project. Here's the issue. Here's the problem. They put a name to the task. So then they knew what they were trying to do. They, they weren't scattered and trying to figure out, okay, what's, what are we doing again? Like they knew what the task was, and they each took personal responsibility in taking care of that task. So Nehemiah being the leader, even though he's probably never been to Jerusalem before, had such a burden for this job of the walls around the city to be completed, he took it upon himself to travel hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to help lead this team to rebuild the walls. It was the task that got them where they needed to go. But it was a huge task, so they had to use teamwork to make this happen. They knew they couldn't do it on their own. They couldn't do it separately. And so they came together as a complete unit and got the job done. Every person did their part in their neighborhood. And before you knew it, in 52 short days, the entire wall around the entire city of Jerusalem is completed in record time because of teamwork. And then the last thing that we talked about last week was they weren't just rebuilding a temple They weren't just rebuilding a physical wall. What they were really doing at the heart of it was rebuilding their society, rebuilding their nation. Again, think about the time of Nehemiah when the wall's been rebuilt and everything's kind of back to how it was. It'd been over 140 years since Jerusalem had been in this condition where the walls are complete and the temple is built and worship to God can ensue. So think about how long ago that was. We're talking, if we're talking 140 years ago, that's just after the Civil War. Imagine if 
uh, Washington, D.C. had been blown to bits, and then 140 years later, everything's back. The capital city's back, and business, that's a long time for that to, to wait, but that's what it took, and they did it, and they knew that they weren't just rebuilding a physical thing, but they were rebuilding their society, so it had to be based on the teaching of God's Word. That's the last thing we looked at last week. Uh, the task, the teamwork, and then the teaching that rebuilt the foundation of who they were meant to be. But there's one more aspect that we're going to look at today that is so important. It is crucial. It is vital, not only to them completing the task God had for them, but for you and I to complete the task that God has for us. Because I don't know if you know this, but God has a plan for you and your life. God has a purpose for you. God has you placed exactly where you are in every area of your life on purpose, for a purpose. And so we want to apply what we're looking at here in our own lives. So to be successful in what God has for us to do requires tenacity. That's what we're going to talk about today. Tenacity is what we're going to look at. That's the final sort of brick on top of this tower, if you will. Because when you look at the people that, looked, that did these two projects in the Old Testament, the projects themselves were grueling. And they were large, they were epic, they were of a massive scale, both of them were. And not only that, we'll focus on today, along the way they faced constant opposition. With both projects, the people trying to build the temple, trying to rebuild the walls and gates around the city, faced attacks from enemies. They faced fierce opposition. So we'll look at today our four main lines of attack that they faced in their rebuilding effort. And we'll apply it to our lives because you and I face the same four types of attack in the work that we're trying to do, in the lives that we're trying to build, in the good that we're trying to accomplish. We face these same four strategies or modes of attack uh, that we'll look at today. So we're going to see how they, how they combated those and how we can do the same. So let's go to Ezra here for just a second. Ezra chapter 4, uh, we're going to go kind of back. We talked about Nehemiah a lot last week. We're going to go back in time about 70 years before that as they're rebuilding the temple to see how these strategies sort of played out. So Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Ahershadon, I don't know how to say that, of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders of Israel replied, You may have no part in this work. We alone will build the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. Again, we're talking about the importance of tenacity to accomplish the work that God has for us. And there's four strategies used against us in trying to accomplish that work. And here's the first one. The first strategy used in rebuilding of the temple was to destroy the work. Just all out and out destroy their work. So Israel's enemies here, what they tried to do is they tried to use dishonesty to infiltrate the work to destroy from within. Their goal was destruction because they're saying, so they use the line that we hope the aliens use when they come to invade earth. We come in peace, right? They said, hey, we're nice. We're your neighbors. We want to help. Let us help. And Zerubbabel was like, I don't know that I trust these people. I don't think they're being honest with us right now. I, no, thanks, but no thanks. We just want to help. No, they wouldn't let them help. They said, oh, we're just like, we worship the same God as you. No, you don't. 
No, you, no, you don't. You're, you do not at all. Like, where have you been the last, I don't know, thousand years of our existence? Nowhere. That's not true. No, you're not welcome to help. We have the same goals in mind that you do. No, you don't. That's what the people are saying. That's what Zerubbabel says. No, no you don't. I can smell a rat. It's, this is, something's not adding up here. He didn't just let just anyone come in and just help. Because the goal was to deceive, infiltrate, and then sabotage, destroy the work that was happening. But the people saw through that deception, through, I think, the good leadership of Zerubbabel. They refused the infiltration, and they avoided sabotage and destruction. Unfortunately, we face the same type of attack in, in our lives. This is sad but true. The statement I'm going to make is sad, but you know it's true. Not everyone in your life is for you. Not everyone in your life is really on your team, even if they may claim at times that they are. It's sad but true. Not everyone, in the, especially in the broader culture, is on the same team as you. If you're a person of faith, the culture is actively, constantly opposed against your values, against what the, the Word of God says. Again, if we're connecting last week and this week, if we're building this on the teaching of God's Word, the modern culture is not about that. They have no interest in building their lives and their culture and their way of life on what God says. It's what, what they say goes. So we have to be aware of this tactic. We have, to be, we have to see this. And Jesus, of all people, warned us this is the reality of our situation. Jesus warned us of this. Matthew 10, let's look at this for a minute. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 16, Jesus tells us, hey, watch out for the people around you that may not be on your team. Here's what he says, Matthew 10, 16. Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers, but this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And all nations will hate you because you are my followers. But everyone who endures to the end will be saved. Nice little pick-me-up for your Sunday morning so far, right? But look here at who Jesus warns us may be setting themselves up as our enemies. Look at who he lists here. Three main categories he lists. First, the government. No big shock there, right? And, you know, it's just like, oh, yeah, I knew that was coming. It's true. I know that right now we have quite a bit of religious freedom where we live in our country. That will not last forever. Jesus is not a liar. He knows what he's talking about. And I think we're even maybe beginning to see little touches of that on the fringe. As time progresses, more and more, the government will, will feel pressure by the culture that is not thinking the same way we are to crack down on people that think the way that we think and believe the way that we believe. It will happen. It is coming. It is already starting to really bubble under the surface. Religious liberty is already to some degree under attack. Religious values are no longer valued anymore, even on a governmental level in many ways. So Jesus knew what he was talking about, and we're already starting to see that. That's not a big shocker, so we're done with that one for now. Here's one that might be a little bit more of a shock. 
Jesus lists one of the possible enemies of us could be other churches, other people of faith. Now, that might be a bit of a surprise, but he says you'll be handed over to who? The synagogues to be flogged and whipped. Wow. The syn- yeah, the synagogues, the spiritual leaders, the spiritual elite who should, who should kind of be able to be above this, they're, they're getting down and dirty, and they're, doing, they're a part of this opposition to the faith. And as you read even the book of Acts, you read that. They're arrested by who? By the religious leaders. They're taken where? To the synagogue to be beaten and questioned, you know, and, and held as prisoner. So he says, watch out even for these other churches. Now, they're so that we, we don't want to have that happen in our community, okay? We want to have a healthy relationship with other churches around us. Because sometimes how this will kind of manifest itself now is churches will come against churches because of style, not substance. Now, if there's an actual doctrinal error that needs to be dealt with, church to church, leader to leader, whatever, hopefully that's rare. But if it happens, we can't just say, well, we got to be nice. So we can't, you know, they're preaching like an anti-gospel. So we just got to, you know, get along. Not always, but by and large, we have to work, work out some of those minor differences and work together as the big C church, right? the universal type of church that we come together. We have these small issues that we don't agree on, little second or third tier issues that we can just, but we're coming together for a larger, more common goal. But what churches sometimes tend to do is, well, they're a mega church, so they're obviously off. They're obviously wrong because they sold out. Because how did they get so big? They had their sellouts. And we don't, no one knows that, but that's what churches, even pastors will say about other churches. Or they're too small. If they were really under God's blessing and doing what he wanted, they wouldn't be so small, Right? That happens. That gets said a lot, all the time. So we can't, we're, on, we're trying to be on the same team here. And Jesus says, just watch out. Watch out that we don't become enemies, even if we're supposed to be on the same team. The third category that Jesus looks at here as possible potential enemies is maybe even the least surprising, but the most disappointing. It's our close personal relationships. He says, brother against brother parent against children, children against parent. Now, not just like this teenager, dad, I hate you. You know, it's not, he's talking about a spiritual thing here. He's talking about because you are my followers, this division happens. Again, the least surprising possibly, but the most disappointing for sure. And maybe you've experienced this before. Family coming against you in strong ways. Family not having your back when you're at your most vulnerable moment. When you need them, where do they go? Maybe they're the ones that are causing the issues that you're dealing with. Friends who abandon you, friends who betray you, friends who stab you in the back, who are two-faced to you. We've dealt with this to some degree. Sometimes even the closest people in relationship to us can actively behind the scenes be aiming to do us harm. Try to destroy our plans, ruin our life, cause strife and division and difficulty. It happens. And you've probably experienced something like that somewhere along the way. So quickly, what do we, what do, we do about that? If we know it's a reality, what's the best course of action? What's our recourse? What do we do? How, we, how can we combat this tactic uh, of opposition? And here's what I want you to think of, okay? I wish I had a picture of it, but I don't. I want you to think of the relationships in your life as concentric circles, okay? Sort of like maybe a target. So what we want to do is be very wise about whom we let in the closer circles to the bullseye. We'll be very wise about who we, again, go back to Ezra chapter 4. We just want to help. They wanted to come in closer 
to the center of the circle. We just want to be a part of what you're, they wanted to infiltrate to then destroy. So we want to be wise about who we let in closer to the bullseye. So people in the bullseye, I trust them completely. I can tell them anything. They can tell me anything. I value their opinion and advice. I can call them at three in the morning with no judgment. They can call me at three in the morning with no judgment. I can be totally vulnerable with people in the bullseye. I can be completely transparent and honest with people in the bullseye. That's who we want in the center, the closer that we get. But not every person in your life can do that. So let's be wise about who we let in closer and closer to the bullseye. Because levels of relationship means levels of access. I'm giving these few people permission to say and do anything in my life. They have complete access to me. Okay? But everybody can do that, so let's be wise um, about that. Uh, and th- let me just say, this is not being snooty, okay? This is not being antisocial. That's not what this is. This is not, I don't trust anyone. That's not what this is. This is not, I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm looking for the worst in everyone all the time, so nobody gets in the bullseye. No, but it's being wise having a gate, having a door with a lock and a safe and another lock and armed guards over the bullseye of our relationships because that is essential to who we are and who we are trying to become. It's wisdom. So sometimes, like in Ezra, we have to read between the lines. So sometimes they'll say they're a great friend. What you see is them always tearing you down. I don't know if they should be in the bullseye right now if that's what we see. Sometimes they say, oh, I've got your back. But then you find out they're talking behind your back. I don't know if that belongs in my bullseye. Sometimes they say they're there for you, but all they cause is drama and division with everyone. They're trying to explode your life, whether intentionally or not. And so we sometimes, when we see this, we have to say, okay, maybe I need to discreetly move them out a level. I'm not, try- not going to call them and cuss them out and say, how dare you? I'm not going to embarrass them in front of other people. I'm not going to, you know, make a big scene. I'm just going to say, okay, I can't give this person as much access as I have been because it's not good for me. It's not healthy. It's not working. It's ruining other relationships and other lives, and so I just can't have that happen. Again, we're trying to avoid destruction in our lives. So sometimes I think that's helpful to see that as sort of the, the who's in the bullseye, and then maybe... Should they be there? Who should be in there that's not? Who's someone that you've had out on rung three that they're always there, great advice, trustworthy, consistent? Yeah, let's move them in. Let's get those people in there. That's what we need to maybe reevaluate that. And then we'll move off this one quickly after this. Remember, though, who the real enemy is. Okay, let's not get lost in the, the neighbor or the family member or the friend or the coworker. Let's remember the real enemy is Satan. A few scriptures, not on the screen, but I'll just reference them. Jesus says this in John 10.10, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So we know right off the bat, destruction is what the enemy is out for. He's not playing games. He's not, he's not, second place is no good. He's out for total domination, destruction. 1 Peter 5.8, he, he describes Satan like this. He says, be aware, Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around, seeking whom he can devour. Devour, destroy. That's what Satan's goal is. And then Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says uh, to put on the full armor of God, right? Because we're not battling against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, powers, and wickedness in high places. So again, we have a real enemy who is Satan, who is very subversive in what he does, very clever with what he does. He will, there's no Geneva Conventions for Satan. Okay? He f- doesn't fight fair. He, do- he just does not. He will give you a swirly all the time. You know, like he will, he will just you know, kick you while you're down, especially while you're down so you don't get back up. So he will use anything he can. He will use anyone he can to attempt to destroy your life and all that you're trying to accomplish for God's purposes. So that's why uh, Peter says, be alert of the enemy. That's why Paul says, be strong in the Lord when you put on the armor of God. So we want to be aware of this tactic and then work to avoid destruction. So the second one, and I'll say the first one is by far the longest, so don't get concerned, all right? It's by far the longest one. So the second tactic that is sometimes used and was used in Ezra and Nehemiah was the attempt to discredit the work being done and the people doing the work. So in Ezra 4, again, they're still rebuilding the temple. Back in Zerubbabel's day, they're rebuilding the temple. And what happens is in Persia, there's a new king in town. So the enemies of the building project, they take advantage of this opportunity and they send a letter to the new king to kind of introduce themselves, you know, we're the good guys. And so we just want to let you know what's going on so you can be abreast of a situation. And what they say in the letter is, hey, we just want you, there's a building project going on here. We're trying to rebuild the old temple in Jerusalem and they're talking rebellion. King, they are up to no good. I mean, they're talking about they're not going to pay tribute to you anymore. So you can just forget your extra, you know, income that you got coming in from, it's not, they said they're not going to pay it. Uh, and, and, you know, if you even look back, you know, in your records, you will see that they are traditionally troublemakers. These Jerusalem people, these Jews, they mean nothing but trouble. They try to cause problems all the time. I mean, just look at the records. And so they, they discredit the people and the work being done. Unfortunately, the king sides with this letter and he sends back a letter saying, stop rebuilding immediately. And so until the new king comes, 18 years later, not one more brick is laid on the foundation of the temple. So that's a detail we left out a couple weeks ago for this purpose. It wasn't just that it was difficult and hard and, you know, a lot to do. It's that huge opposition in the way, almost two decades of nothing because the enemies tried to discredit and defame the work being done. Same thing with Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 6, the wall is pretty much finished, and they're trying to put now the doors and the gates into the different neighborhoods around the city. And the enemies of Nehemiah send him a letter. And their letter says, we know what you're up to. Like, we, we know that you have impure motives. We know you're all about yourself on this. We've heard a lot of rumors, and we try to say, no, it can't be, but we just can't deny it. We, we, we've heard rumors that you're going to say you're the king now. That's what they say. We know you don't have pure motives. Like We understand. You've come from serving one king in Syria to now trying to be the king in Jerusalem. Yeah, we're not all about that. So they tried to discredit him, even though none of this was true at all. Made up whole cloth. It's a tactic of the enemy to discredit the work being done. And again, unfortunately, we deal with this same tactic in our lives. You've probably dealt with the same tactic in your life. People try to attack your character. They just make up things about you. Like, nothing remotely like this has ever happened, and it certainly didn't just happen. Like, I'm not trying to cover up anything. I'm not trying to deny it. Like, this just is not a real thing. It happens all the time. I will say this, though. We have, this is the second one of four, but of all four tactics, this one should be the weakest one. And here's why. If your character is intact... 
If you are a person of integrity, this will not last very long. In the short term, it's angering and it hurts, and a few people that don't know you that well might believe some of these things, but long term, broad scale, this cannot work if, as we talked about last week, if you're building your life, as imperfect as it is, as imperfect as we all are, if we're building it on the foundation of God's teaching, then our character is intact. And so no amount of discrediting will work for very long. So I know it's hard to think of that in the moment. I've been there, but it's just true. It should be the weakest of all the attacks that we'll talk about. People try to attack your character, lie about you. Like Nehemiah, they'll question your motives. Yeah, you're just trying to get involved in this so that you can run the show here. Yeah, you just decided to take this, you know, this on so that you can buy a nicer car and brag about it. It's like, that's not what this is at all. There's nothing to this accusation at all. And so when people question your motives, here I would just recommend, it's Psalm 139, 24. David says, search me, O God, search my heart and know me. He says, see if there is any wicked way in me. So when your motives are questioned, here's my advice. Check yourself, but don't wreck yourself. If you look and you think, okay, let's just think about it for a second. Is there maybe an ulterior motive I have here? If there is, let's get it out of the way. Let's maybe confess that and say, okay, what is the real purpose? What should, should I be doing here? But if you look and you investigate, you're like, I'm really trying to just do the best I can. I'm really just trying to help these people out. I'm just trying to be the best Christ follower I can be. Then just totally ignore the discrediting efforts of the enemies in your life. That's what we have to do. Sometimes people will do this. They'll keep bringing up your past mistakes. Oh, I can't believe you think you're so good now, but I knew you 10 years ago. Uh, you th oh, yeah, you claim that you're squeaky clean, but I got dirt. I know where your closet is, and there's a skeleton. There's skeletons all in your closet. Let me just give you two responses. The first one, don't do, but it's fun to talk about, okay? <laughs> first response to this line of attack is, do you really want to play that game? Because I know you're dirt, too. Like, we can, we can fling mud together. Like, I'm good at that. I got a strong arm. I've been working out. Like, we can do that. Do you want to go there? You do not want to go there, so let's knock it off. No, don't do that, but it's just fun to think that, all right? So... <laughs> Maybe here's a better line, uh, a better line of defense. On this. You, can, you can maybe to some degree acknowledge that, but say, that's, yeah, that's part of who I was, but it's not who I am now. And I, yeah, I, I made some big mistakes, and I really dropped the ball here, but I'm growing, I'm learning, right? So you, you, you can't spell history without story. It's in there. The past is in there, all right? Uh, you can't spell testimony without a test, so there's going to be things and trials that you had to overcome, mistakes that you made, things that you wish you could take back that you can't. That's just part of it. And you can't spell growth without ow. Okay? There are moments where you look back, I've grown because that hurt. I've grown because I don't want to do that again. I got tired of beating my head against the same wall, so I'm going to grow past that thing. So we have to say, okay, yeah, that's me, but I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm different, I'm, I'm maturing in my faith. So that line of attack doesn't really work either. And the main thing, if, we, if you go back to Nehemiah again, look at this, write it down, Nehemiah 6, verse 9. Nehemiah sniffed this tactic out quickly. When they came to him with, these, with this letter, here's, he said this, he said, I knew they were just trying to intimidate us to stop the work. So what that did is it made us even more motivated to work that much harder. 
They were so close to the end. They were like 90% done with this project when this discrediting effort comes from his enemies. And he says, they were just trying to intimidate me because they knew if I stopped working, the whole operation fails at the last second and I couldn't let it happen. So we were even more determined. Let's get this thing done now. So that's a good motivation, I think, for us to remain determined even when people try to discredit us and our efforts. So here's the third line of attack that was used that we'll look at here also in Nehemiah. The third line of attack is to distract. The third line of attack in opposition toward us and the work that we're doing is to distract us. Again, go back to Nehemiah 6. The building project is almost finished here in Nehemiah 6, and here's what Nehemiah writes down. Nehemiah 6 verse 1. He names some of the enemies here. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors and the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. First of all, red flag. Yeah, it's right there. I mean, how stupid are these guys? Meet me in the plain of Oh No. It's like, see said location for my response. <laughs> oh no, okay? So he says this, but I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. It's a similar tactic to, to Ezra 4. You know, we just want to help. So here what they're saying is, hey, just take a quick break. We want to have a meeting downtown over here and just talk about some stuff. And I know that you're doing, you know, work that you think is important. What we have to say is really important. What we have to tell you, you just, you got to know. You can't miss this. You, you can put that off for a while and do this instead. It was a distraction tactic. Nehemiah knew it was a distraction tactic, and he refused to be distracted. He says, I, I can't come down now. Do you see we're almost done with this? I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to take a break. I'm not going to take a siesta. I'm not going to take a vacation. We're going to finish this thing out. My work is too important. But it says four times. Same, they pestered him and pestered him and pestered him. Just take a break. Come down. Talk to us. We're more important than what you're doing. They didn't give up, but he didn't give in. Let me encourage you with this. The work that you're doing is too important to be outdone by distraction. Whatever God has for you is too important to be undone by distractions. Let's look at just a couple of areas in your life. Your marriage, if you're married, is too important for that other person. They are a distraction. Your marriage is too important to quit because of these other things that I'm just too busy and we've lost connection and we don't even see things the same anymore. No, it's too important to quit. It's too important for distraction. Your family is too important to ignore for all these other things. It's just too important, the work that you're doing in your family. It's too valuable to replace with other things. Now, there are seasons and times where we're more busy than others, and there are times where we have to work more hours than others. That's true. However, we have to set some hard limits at some point to protect our family. It's a distraction. We have to maybe set some goals. It's like what Nehemiah said. You're saying this is important, but I'm saying that this is more important. That's what, every, that's what every choice is. Which is more important? Which has more value? Which is more lasting? Which will affect more people in a negative way or a positive way? So when you make the pros and cons list, if it's a cons list, it's obviously a distraction. So we want to view 
everything as much as we can in that way. What we're doing with our marriage and our family is too important for distraction. What God is doing in you, in your faith, is too important to be, out, to be taken out with distractions. It's too important to be sidetracked by some secret sin. I've got this thing no one's ever going to find out. It's not going to be a big deal. If I do get exposed, I can justify it. It's not a, that's a distraction that will destroy your faith. Even Hebrews 12 talks about non-sinful things that can be distractions to growth in our faith. Hebrews 12, 1, he says, Set aside every sin and every weight that holds you back to run with patience the race that is set before you. There are even non-sinful things that will keep us from growing in our faith. And this mainly stems from this busyness factor. Too many things going on. Too many things on my plate. My faith is going to suffer because I'm going to push that off. I can read later. Oh, I can pray later. Or I kind of prayed for my meal. That probably counts. Or, you know, God knows and he understands. Like, eventually, it's, we're going to wither on the vine and die spiritually if we give in to distractions. Even with our faith, let me just mention this quickly. We talked about this a bit the last couple weeks. Even things in your life, in your faith, like questions or excuses are simply distractions. So like, I don't understand all this faith thing, so I'm done. I'm not going to ask more questions. I'm not going to try to discover. I'm not going to dig deeper to understand. I'm just going to wave the white flag. That's a distraction. It's an excuse. I find parts of the Bible difficult to grasp or difficult to, you know, apply to my life or I don't really like what that says. We mentioned it last week. And so we just quit altogether. We can't do that. It's a distraction. The pressure from the culture outside just says, lighten up on the faith thing. Just, you know, whoa, just, you don't, just calm down. What's this Jesus stuff? Like, just, whoa, it's a distraction. Sometimes, here's a big one, other Christians can be a distraction because they weren't perfect enough for me. And so then I get way been out of shape. I thought they were better than that. I thought they were stronger than that. And then we begin to crack in our faith. And then we get so obsessed with what they did that we fail to realize that, yeah, we're all in the same boat here. Or, here's a good one, uh, this person at church hurt my feelings, so I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to quit. And here's the thing, that's real, that hurt happens in church because we're imperfect people, right? Hopefully it doesn't happen here, but it happens, so it's real. And maybe you've experienced that. I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm saying what you do with that is everything. It can either be a distraction or it can be a propellant to you, for you forward. So let's just... Look at this from other areas in life. So when people say, I got hurt at church, so I'm done with faith altogether, sometimes they go to a different church, probably a good idea. Sometimes they just pull back from that other person, probably a good idea. But just to say, I'm done with this whole Christian thing because this Christian didn't act like a Christian, that's stupid. I'm just going to say it. I mean, he's the S word. That's stupid, okay? Bad, Stephen. You said stupid. But look at this in other ways. Listen, if you're driving on the road and another driver cuts you off and then flips you the bird like it's your fault, do you quit driving that's fine. I'm, I'm done. It's just too frustrating. It's just, they, they hurt my feelings. I'm going to, you don't do that. If you have a server at a restaurant and they're not the greatest server and they spill your tea all over the table, maybe they have an attitude or whatever, do you just stop eating? No. Yet, this is the only area of our life that we use that excuse. They hurt me. I hate God, right? That's like, how do we get from there to there so fast? But it happens a lot. Again, you've probably experienced pain from a Christian. That hurts. It's disappointing. It's frustrating. So many emotions. But does that mean we have to go to, I'm going to question my faith now? I'm just going to question church altogether now? No, it doesn't translate anywhere else. So let's not apply it where it doesn't belong. Those are distractions. 
Again, Satan will use anything and anyone to distract you from the work that God has for you. And distractions lead to self-destruction. So let's simply stay focused on Jesus and the simplicity of the gospel and just keep working. More determined than ever. Here's the final mode of attack that we'll look at here for just a few minutes here, and that is discouragement. The final mode of attack that we will all face is to be discouraged. Again, Nehemiah chapter 4, let's look at this for just a minute. Nehemiah 4 verse 1, Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse even if a fox walked along the top of it. Then here's what Nehemiah says, Then I prayed, Hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt, do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. So the final attack was, if we can't destroy the work, if we can't discredit the workers, if we can't distract them, we're going to just crush their spirit. We're going to destroy their spirit. And it's interesting, it's a weird motive, like where did this come from? Was it jealousy that the enemies came at? We don't really know why. Was it fear they're going to overtake and be more powerful than we are? We're going to lose influence? Probably. They become enraged and then gang up on them and publicly shame them. And here's the truth. It's always easier to criticize than it is to contribute, isn't it? It's always easier to tear down than to build up, isn't it? It's always easier to be the armchair quarterback than the actual quarterback. When I'm sitting on my couch on Sunday in a couple months, thank you, Jesus, it's almost here, right? And I'm watching Patty Mahomes. I love the guy, but sometimes he just does stupid stuff, right? But guess what? I had the advantage of seeing an overfield view of all the players at all times. I have, you know, perfect vision of all the players. He's looking like this at everything. So, and he has to make decisions that actually matter. Do I want to get my collarbone broken right now or not? Okay. Do I want to put my team in a disadvantage or do I not? And what am I thinking? Hot wings or nachos? You know, that's what the decision I'm making as the armchair quarterback. It's not the same. And so I have the advantage of instant replay. How did he miss Kelsey? He's wide open. He's a huge beast. How do you not see him? Well, he had three guys who are 6'8", 300 pounds coming at him at lightning speed. He didn't see him. So we have, that's the thing. When when we uh, try to do this to people, it just, it doesn't, it's like that. It's ridiculous. And yet we can sometimes discourage others, so we want to avoid that. But when we, when we face it, it can be debilitating, can it? It can really make you want to quit. So when we do that, as hard as that is, one thing that we see from Nehemiah is we don't want to lash out at that enemy because they want that response. They're looking for that reaction. Oh, I got under their skin now. Woo, I know how to push their buttons now. Don't give them the joy that they're looking for when they try uh, to discourage the work that we're doing. And as hard as this is to do, I would, I would just say listen to you know, the poet laureate Taylor Swift and just shake it off. <laughs> Haters gonna hate. So I'm just gonna shake it off. I would just abide by her wisdom. Let me give you a quick story as we begin to wrap it up. This happened uh, with me. And I'm, I don't know if I've ever told this story before, but it's a good one. It's not a good one, but it's a story. 
So we had just, we were still in the pre-launch phase of our church. We had just decided we're going to be at Lakeview Middle School. And so as we're moving into town, like I try to connect with the different pastors. So I know Pastor Michael across the street at um, Fellowship, I was going to say Freedom of Grace. Like that's not right. Fellowship of Grace and uh, Pastor Stephen at the Presbyterian Church down the road. And of course, we have a history with, you know, Tiffany Fellowship. So trying to meet these pastors, as, you know, we're coming in as a new church. So again, we had just gotten started. So I reached out to another local pastor. I won't say his name or where he's from. Uh, and so I just sent him an email saying, hey, I want to meet you. Let's grab coffee or something sometime. Get an email response back. And basically, in two, it, I'll sum it up in two words. Go away was the response of this pastor. In more words than that, he basically said, you know, we already have a lot of churches in the area here. I feel like, you know, we're doing fine. Maybe you could find a different location or, you know, because I just feel like we're kind of, you know, like too many. And we maybe don't need another one right here. And so my initial response was, I'm glad I don't, you know, conceal carry or what, you know, not, not really, but <laughs> my initial response was anger. I mean, if you, can, you can probably understand that. I'm like, we're just trying to start a church and God's called us here and we're, I'm just trying to say hello. Like, I, I'm trying to meet you. I'm not trying to take, I'm going to meet this guy so I can take his people from his church. And that's not what I'm, that's not what we're doing here. But his response was similar to the people that Nehemiah faced. He felt either threatened or he felt, you know, he's going to gain too much influence. I'm like, you know, I'm not that good, dude. So you're, you're fine. You're, you're safe. It's fine. And so we had to deal with this we, or even early on. And I, I, didn't, I didn't respond at all, um, which was probably good. I did keep the email way too long, though. I didn't listen to Taylor Swift very well. I didn't it took me a while to shake it off. I kept that email in a folder for a long time, uh, and then I finally got rid of it, and it's fine. But that happens, and it, it can happen. It can be discouraging. So are people going to doubt you? Yes. Let them doubt. Are people going to second guess? Let them second guess. People are going to judge you. Let them judge. People are going to be jealous of you. Let them be jealous. Let them be miserable, okay? People are going to criticize you. You build, let them criticize, and we'll see who feels better at the end of that exchange. So the, the response here that Nehemiah had is, I choose joy. I choose joy. I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to get even. I'm not going to do this thing to show them anything. Because if we build anything on the foundation of getting even or, you know, a bitterness, it's not going to last very long either. I choose joy. I won't be deterred. I, the work that I'm doing is too important to quit. And so we want to avoid discouragement. And sometimes it comes from within, too. And that's why, again, Nehemiah 8, verse 10, he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When that self-doubt creeps in, when those questions start to creep in, when it gets too much for you, when you start to think, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I missed the boat. Maybe I missed God on that. Remember, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It fights off discouragement from without and from within. So my encouragement for us is to let's live with the same tenacity that these people lived with. Let's live in the same type of faith that these people lived with so that we can overcome any challenge, opposition, or even attack to fulfill the work that God has for us to do. Let's pray. God, as we've been saying the, the last few weeks, we do believe that you have great plans. And we believe that you want to use us, yes, little old us, little nobody us, little ordinary us, to fulfill your great plan. You want to use us to do great things for your cause, for your kingdom. But we know that with that comes opposition. We know in life, even though we try to do the right thing, sometimes we just keep getting beaten down and beaten up and questioned and ostracized and attacked from all angles and all sides. But God, I thank you that you are everything to us. 
I thank you that you are our defender, you're our provider, you're our encourager, and so we lean into you in those moments of greatest need, the greatest attack, and say, God, I need you in this moment. I need thee. Every hour I need thee should be our prayer. So God, we thank you that whatever attack we face, you are greater than that attack. Whatever obstacle we take, you are greater than that obstacle. When the enemy comes in to destroy Jesus, you say you give life and life more abundantly. When people try to discredit us, you are our defender. You are our shield. You are a tower we can run to and be safe. When we face distraction, the Holy Spirit can keep us on track. He can help, us to, he can help to remind us what is truly important, what truly matters, what our true purpose is. And when we're discouraged, you are the glory and the lifter of our head. As Nehemiah said, you are the joy. We find joy and we find strength in you. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So I pray that whatever attack that we are facing, we would lean into you in those times. We would find those people to put in the center of our bullseye to help carry the load for us at times as well. Help us to know that we are not alone. We are not abandoned. It is not too far gone. And you have a purpose and a plan for each and every one of us. And I thank you for that reminder and that power and encouragement today. In Jesus' name, amen.